Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the 963 Universal Frequency. I'm your host, Esther Clare, spreading awareness with an open heart, an open mind, living life and being free. In this episode, I have a guest that's joined me all the way from Sweden. She is a remarkable person. I really enjoyed our conversation as I do with all of my guests. Obviously, I wouldn't have a podcast if I wasn't interested in the topics and the person that I had on my show. We are going to be talking about reprogramming our brain. Naturally, our brain is designed to be more susceptible to negative thoughts rather than positive. And that is thanks to the reptilian part of our brain, also known as the primal or basal gangalia, the primitive section of our brain. In this area, it governs our survival instincts, and it is also where the subconscious determines our decisions. It's where fight, flight, and freeze hang out, awaiting to be triggered. And depending on the person's reward system of the brain, whether it's a, a, a good or bad feeling of pleasure, desire, or craving, this circuit, the basal gangalia, creates a pattern of recognition into our psyche. And it steers the person into repeating the action due to the, the dopamine chemical or the neuron transmitters that are released into the brain and the body, where our nervous system uses it to send messages between the nerve cells. Sounds like a computer system, right? <laughs> so similar to mammals and reptiles, it does have a purpose, which is to protect us from threats defending ourselves or fleeing to ensure our survival. But what if we as humans are confused or not aware as to what is an actual threat? What is actually harmful to us? What if we are perceiving past life events that is giving us a false illusion of present situations? The brain is an intrinsical feature in terms of its functioning of neurons, muscles, neural stem cells, and, and all those other neuron scientific terms that I, I don't even have a clue what they mean. I'm quite sure most of humanity are not aware of what they mean. And to be honest, I don't believe we really need to know these terminologies. What we do need to know is why we think a certain way and act a certain way observe these thoughts and the actions and to become the intention. So in this episode, Karen Tyden explains how we can reprogram our brains to think more positively and break out of those old habits using a simple technique. And anyone can do this. Please enjoy the conversation and I will catch you at the end. Joining me all the way from Sweden is Karen Tyden, who will be sharing her inner wisdom on the mechanics behind people's subconscious patterns to help us understand and create better strategies in our lives and reach our full potential. 
Karen is a multi-award winning coach and author of the book Mind Hacking for Rebels, which was a winner for the Independent Press Awards. And she's also recognized in over 25 countries for her brilliant mind and words of knowledge. I'm thrilled to be connecting with you today, Karen. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> I thought let's kick it off with my favorite question. I always find this inspiring. I love hearing about how people come to find their passion. So what brought you into the specialty of the subconscious mind? Oh, wow. How much time do you have? Lots. <laughs> I love okay, these. Great. I love these stories. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was born into a very dysfunctional family and of course, that created a lot of patterns that I wasn't very satisfied with uh, when I became a little bit older. But I didn't, I didn't know how to solve them. So one thing, um, I became a perfectionist because perfectionism is not about striving for excellence. Actually, it's more of a defense mechanism. So for me, it was, if I'm perfect, nobody can yell at me, nobody can hurt me, so I'm safe. So, and that came about because I had a father that was narcissistic and had a really bad temper. So whenever I made a mistake, he could sometimes really, really punished me severely. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So uh, one little thing I remember was that my mother often said that you, you just wait until daddy comes home. And that was kind of a dark cloud hanging over my head the whole day because I never knew how he would react. So uh, that was one of the small things that happened. So um there were a lot of other things that my parents were religious. So, you know, you have an ideal you have to live up to. So there was a lot of different things that made me believe that in order to be chosen by God or in order to be safe, not punished, I need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from one perspective, it, it was a good trait uh, because uh, when I worked, I always worked very hard mm -hmm. and my, a lot of my bosses were very pleased with me because I, I did a perfect job mm -hmm. I didn't I was relentless and they could always you know rely on me making a good job but the other side of perfectionism was that I I almost burned myself out mm -hmm. I worked too much and also sometimes I could lie, you know, in order to just be perfect. No, that wasn't me. I don't know what you're talking about. It was this other person. So, you know, the dark side or the shadow side of perfectionism, not owning sometimes when I did something that was wrong. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. Um, another thing was that my whole life, I learned very early to cope with all my feelings on my own. Mm -hmm. because my, my father was very, had a bad temper and my mother was really absent in her emotions. So I felt at a very young age that if there is a problem, if I have feelings, I need to sort them out by myself. So 
my whole life, I, I'm going into a little cave when I'm not feeling very good. <laughs> right. And I stay in the cave until I've solved the problem. And that's not very good when you are in relationships because you don't share, you don't ask for help, and you are not letting the other person in, you know, yeah. close to you. Mm-hmm. So that destroyed a lot of romantic relationship for me because I was fiercely independent uh, and I didn't dare to, to share emotions and I kept it all within myself. And when it became too much, my strategy was just to let, to leave. That, that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, and often leaving the person not knowing what happened, <laughs> what did they do wrong and what happened? She just left. That was my kind of coping mechanism. So I had a, a bunch of these old programs that wasn't really working for me, but I didn't know how do I solve them? Why are they there? So when I was 35, I went into a depression and I didn't even know that it was a depression. It was not until I read an article about it that, okay, that sounds like me. Mm-hmm. And I started to work on myself and I started with traditional, some kind of psychotherapy, uh, but it didn't work. Yeah. Um, well, we talked about the problem. I gained some insights, but there was still a lot of things hidden. And also I felt that even though I knew more about my problem, I still couldn't solve it. So I still had the behavior that I didn't want. Mm-hmm. So then I became very interested in, okay, if, if talking is not making me change my behavior, what does? Yeah. And I started to kind of research for myself and see how does the brain work, the nervous system, the mind, everything. And then finally, I came across hypnosis. And I understood about the subconscious mind, because Mm -hmm. with hypnosis, you work a lot with the subconscious mind. And I started slowly to realize that in order to, to change thoughts, emotions, and behavior, you need to access the subconscious mind. Because the subconscious mind is like a a big library Mm -hmm. where you have stored everything you experienced and everything you learned. And when you come into situations or you meet certain people, it's often the subconscious kind of taking over almost like an an old, you know, Rolodex, like a file system. So... So the subconscious is kind of, okay, this person or this situation, let's see in my Rolodex, (laughs) what kind of strategy am I going to use that worked before? Yeah. So the subconscious mind has no idea of time. So it doesn't know that the, the strategy that you used maybe 10 years ago or even 30 years ago it's not the best one today. It still uses the same strategy because it's stored in the library as a strategy that works. Yeah. So it kind of uses it over and over and over again. So in order to break these kind of patterns, you have to access the subconscious mind, the big library, and you have to kind of start negotiation with the subconscious mind to see 
can we let go of that old structure, that old program, that old strategy or behavior, and maybe install a new one that is better for you today? I look at the brain as a human computer. It's as if our memories are saved in the brain, similar to saving files in a computer folder. And it shares information by how we as humans communicate to others, whether it's our personality, our intelligence, our compassion or empathy. And AI, artificial intelligence, is developing and or has developed to the point where it now has human traits too. So I really do feel as if we are very much, our bodies work the same as a computer. We need to reboot and upgrade or download the next version of software to keep us in the game. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, no, I I love the way you explained everything. You, You really make it easy to understand. Yeah, I try to because it, it's easy to, I love um, helping people in a very easy way to understand how it works. Mm. So we have to understand that they say that about 95% of our day is run by the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. So if we have really non-functional patterns or programs down there these are the programs that will run you 95 percent of your day and then people say but wow uh, why that's not a good thing and I said well it's a little bit uh, first of all it's about survival so uh you know these old Jesuit priests they used to say that give me a child before the age of seven and I will give you the man. So they knew that if they could get hold of a child before seven years old and teach that child about life, that will at the end produce the grown up. Okay. So the first seven years in a person's life, I call that the download period, because that's when we download the rules of the game. Okay. Mostly, of course, we learn our whole life, but it's extremely intense from birth up to seven years old, because we are very, very impressionable and moldable at that age. And it's due to, it's a survival mechanism because we have to learn the rules of the game in order to get connection, safety, love, all these things that we need as a human being. Mm-hmm. So a small child is really learning really fast the rules. How do I get love? Yeah. How do I get connection? How, how do I get approval how do I feel safe and they watch and they learn and those strategies that you implement as a child sometimes you have them 20 years later or even 40 and 50 years later because those strategies the subconscious mind well they work yeah they work in a way because for instance if you don't like conflicts and you Whenever there is a conflict, you leave. And maybe you started doing that when you were five years old. 
because your parents were arguing and they were mad at each other and you get really scared. And what can you do? Nothing. So you leave. You go and sit behind the sofa or you go into your room or you hide in some way. That is a good strategy when you are five because you don't want to sit there listening, become scared and feeling helpless because you can't do anything about the situation. The problem comes when you grow up and suddenly you are an adult and maybe you are a manager at the workplace and there is a conflict. So the subconscious is saying, okay, conflicts, we know that one. It's not, we don't like it. It's loud. We get scared. So what is the strategy here? Well, it's leaving the conflict. And at the moment, it can sound like a good idea because if you leave the conflict, you won't get hurt mm -hmm. and it won't be messy. Mm -hmm. And you can just, you know, exit and that's that and leave it to the other people to solve it. But if you are a manager at work, it could be in your description as a manager to resolve conflicts or to help the employees to sort something out. And if you don't do that, you will be seen as a manager. Oh, he or she is it's not a good manager. They just leave the room mm, yeah. or they don't do anything or it can create a bad vibe at the working place because nobody is you know, doing anything about it. Yeah. So then suddenly the strategy becomes not a good one. <laughs> it's a counterproductive. So you have to kind of know that even if it was a productive and a very good strategy when you were five years old, it's not a good today, but you still have it because in the moment it can, it can feel like a good strategy not to get involved. So is this survival mechanism that is driving us to seek solutions and seek uh, opportunities that are really safe and good for us? Maybe not in the long run, but here in the moment. And the other thing is that um, it's energy saving. Energy saving. So, yeah. So why the subconscious is kind of ruling our day 95% of the day, it's due to energy saving. Okay. So a lot of the time it's a good thing because if you, if, you, if you wake up in the morning and you have to start thinking about, okay, how do I put my trousers on? Which <laughs> leg first? Or how do I put the, the tea kettle or the coffee pot on? How do I do that? The, the day would be a long day and your mind would explode. There's too much information going on. Right. So when we have done things a lot of times, it gets automatic in our subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And that's because it saves energy. And that means that you can think about your job when you put the kettle on. You can still do other things. You automatically put your clothes on. You know how to do it. You don't have to think about it. And you can talk to your spouse or you can talk to your kids at the same time. So it saves a lot of energy and helps you a lot of different things at the same time. Mm -hmm. But the problem is with this automation is that if it's a negative program that is running you, 
it will also run you when it shouldn't do it because it's automated for saving energy. That's why we go into situations and we meet people and suddenly we just react because the subconscious is taking over say, okay, we know that type of person <laughs> or right. we know this kind of situation. This is how we're going to act. We're going to save energy. You don't have to think about it. We just react because we know how to react in this situation. But the problem is that if the reaction is not a good one, it's not doing nothing for us. It's just coming out. And then that is why people come to me mm-hmm. and they say, why do I react the way I do in certain situations? I know that I shouldn't do it, but it's like I have no power. It's like something is just taking over and I'm just reacting. And that's the subconscious mind taking over what you need to do and just do it for you. Okay. So you were saying before how it, it impacts us a lot the way that we think when we're a child before the age of seven. So to, to I guess, prevent this from happening to other people it would be, I guess, the, the parent would be obliged to, to teach that child these types of ways of thinking, this foundation yeah. of. And so say if we're now older, <laughs> you know, for example, yeah. you know, someone my age, you know, or you're in your, you're in your thirties, you're in your forties, what way, or how can they reprogram their way of thinking if they're already set in their ways? Yeah. Well, my first message is that realize that there is nothing wrong with you mm-hmm. because a lot of people that come to me, they are full of self-blame. Why can't I do this? Why do I always react this way? I am a bad person. I'm a failure. They put a lot of self-blame for not doing the right thing. So I'm always telling my clients to, there is nothing wrong with you. It's just the program that is running you. That program is wrong. And that's a good thing because that we can change. So first of all, is taking away the self-blame. So instead of saying that I'm a bad person, I'm a failure, why do I do this and that? Why don't I get it? <laughs> instead, realizing that it's just an old program running you and you haven't been aware of it. So now the second step is to kind of just be aware of it that, okay, when I come into specific situations or I meet specific challenger or obstacles, or I meet specific persons, I sometimes get triggered by these old programs. So the subconscious mind is kind of saying that, okay, we know this situation, this is how we're going to handle it. And it takes this old strategy and just reuse it over and over again. Mm -hmm. So just be aware of it. And one question you could ask yourself in the beginning is, what happened to me in life that made me act in this way? Mm-hmm. So for instance, if we take that manager that are really afraid of conflicts. Mm-hmm. So if you could ask yourself like, okay, what happened to me that made me afraid of conflicts? 
And sometimes it's not just conflicts, you know, if people are mad at each other, arguing. It could also be that you don't dare to speak up because you are afraid of that could be a conflict on the way if you speak your mind, Mm -hmm. if you speak your truth, if something could happen. So conflicts could be a lot of different things, but you could ask yourself, what happened to me when I was younger that made me avoid conflicts or not speak up or not daring to say what I think or don't think about things? Mm -hmm. And often you will find a couple of memories when you were younger where stuff happened, where you got scared or you got the blame or someone got mad at you or something. And you kind of just knew at that point that I need to protect myself by keeping quiet and just leave. So this kind of clarity is really good. So I could recommend your listeners to when they have, um, yeah, you know, a moment over in the afternoon or in the evening, just close your eyes and just ask yourself that question. What happened to me to make me have this behavior and see what pops up in their mind. (laughs) And after that, uh, the third step is that you really need to take accountability. You have to own it. And you have to say, okay, um, this happened to me and I can have empathy for myself, my younger self, uh, for going through that hard times. But today as a grown up, I need to take ownership of how I, who I am and how I act in life. And therefore, you start to reclaiming your power. You're not any longer blaming someone else, your parents or your teachers or your uh, classmate. You don't play the victim exactly. And you take back your power and say, I can change this today because you can do it. And the last thing I would say is action. Because we are wired in the brain to feel positive feelings when we have an aim and we see ourselves progressing. So it's very hard for our wiring, our brain to feel positive feelings if we have no aim at all and we can't see ourselves progressing. So I would say, choose a small, a small goal or a small aim. So don't take the biggest, hardest uh, behavior and start with that. Start with a small one and say that, okay, I'm going to aim for changing this small little behavior that I don't like. And then I'm going to see the progress and that's going to make me feel more positive and often just help me to continue to move forward. And there's something so admirable when you see somebody that you can tell has taken accountability for their action and then they try to become a better person or they try to figure out, you know, what can I do? And, you know, there's, um, yeah, there's just something that you, I think ego gets in the way a lot of the time. Like people tend to be, well, I was right and you were wrong. And um, yeah, so when you see that somebody does take accountability, it really does show and it can actually make a situation so much better for both people if, say, it's a conflict between two people. 
with yeah. um, procrastination and being counterproductive, say if somebody is wanting to achieve a, a goal, as you had mentioned before, or say if they wanted to be in a particular career, but they just find that something holds them back all the time and it's that negative way of thinking, what dominates that? You, you did mention that, you know, to be aware of certain ways that we we think and behave, but, you know, what, what would you define as the reasons behind why somebody might not want to achieve their goals? Oh, it's so individual. It's so depending on the, on the person. So that's why it's hard sometimes when, uh, when you do a workshop or you speak to people, you have to generalize and just say it could be this or that. But some things that are stopping you from moving forward in life and maybe making a career could be, for example, um, fear of failure. That um, if I do something, I will fail and that will maybe then confirm the belief that I have about myself that I am a failure. So sometimes we don't dare to try because if we fail, it will confirm the worst thoughts that we have about ourselves and we don't want that confirmation. So that's why it's better to not know. We could have reached the goal maybe, but we will never know. And it kind of protects us from, yeah, I couldn't do it. And now I'm a failure and I'm a bad person. But there are actually also people that are really afraid of success. That's another possible reason. And the reason for being afraid of success could be that, you know, it can be snatched away. Mm. So if you got it, you can lose it. So it's for some people, it's better to be really low and never hit the high because then you don't have to go all the way down to the low again, (laughs) that slide down because that's horrible. So Mm. it's better to kind of be a little bit down all the time, a little bit like, I'm not happy, but I'm not unhappy because then they are safe. So they don't have to, to feel that big fall from the top. It could also be uh, self-esteem issues that I'm not worthy of this. I'm not a good person. So I am not worthy of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people could have done things when they were younger that they still carry on as shame. Uh, they could stole some pocket money from their mother. They could have hit their younger sister or something like that. It could also be that uh the parents have put some shame on them. Uh, you don't do what I want you to do. You are a, you're a bad boy or something like that. <laughs> right. So a lot of this shame is stopping us because we feel that when we are carrying around a lot of shame, we often feel that we are a bad person and we are not worthy of, you know, being happy and having success. So that could be another reason for procrastination and things. It could also be, why you don't succeed and moving towards success. It could be fear. It could be fear that if you get into the spotlight, as you do when you become successful, someone can hurt you. 
you know, because suddenly people will envy you or you are in the spotlights. People will see much more what you do. So they kind of, they can critique you. They can attack you. And that's a lot of what happening on social media right now. Mm, yeah. That sometimes some people get really, really famous and they get, get a lot of attention, but they also get all these bad negative reviews and it takes a lot of toll on them. Yeah. So that's another factor that what is all the thing that is coming towards me around that, that could be negative. Uh, it could also be um, not believing in yourself. So there can be a belief that I am, I don't have the qualification. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I wouldn't be good at it. And that's because they don't rely on their own capacity. And actually I had a woman a couple, a couple of days ago and we actually worked on that because her whole life, she felt that she was not good. She was uh, different than other kids and she was very shy and everything. And what we realized, and she said, oh, I would love to go. My, my, my manager has, you know, promoted me and uh, because I'm doing a really good job, but I don't want the promotion and I don't want to do a uh, come into the spotlights. And what we noticed about her was that when she was a little girl around, um, two, three years old, her mother put her in daycare. And the little girl was very shy. So she started to cry. And her mother immediately picked her up, took her home and said, you don't have to go there. So the little girl stayed home until she was uh, about seven and going to ordinary school. Mm-hmm. And then she went into the school and she felt the same way. I don't know anyone. Everybody else seemed to know each other. And she wanted her mother to pick her up and take her home, but it couldn't because you have to go to school. So what we learned, what this woman learned during this session was that she didn't believe that she could socialize with people that she could take on some kind of responsibility because with this new job, she had to speak up. She had to mingle with people and everything. She had to go to more meetings. And she was, I can't do that. And it was because her mother had always, you know, taken away from challenges, not training her enough to say that, go in and play with the kids and learn how to socialize Mm-hmm. So she started crying because she, I always thought that there was something wrong with me because all the other kids were running around playing together. And I was just standing in the corner in school. And I said, no, it's not because of that. It's because your mother took you home when you were little and she didn't allow you to explore and be curious about other kids and to get confident and yeah. knowing that, oh, the other kids are nice. So when you started school, all these kids the other kids, they are seven years old. A lot of them have, you know, been together since kindergarten and they know each other and they are socialized and you are not. So she said that that made a huge impact on her understanding that there was nothing wrong with her qualifications. She was not just trained to socialize. So sometimes you have this 
perception of yourself that something is wrong with you. And when you get an understanding that sometimes you just have to be trained, it's nothing else than you have to be trained, then you can dare to move on to success because all these things you can train so you get more secure and you feel your power and you feel that, well, I like myself. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned hypnosis. So that's one of your tools. Is it okay to say it's one of your tools that you use to to help assist people? What exactly is hypnosis? How does it work? Uh, Hypnosis uh, basically is some kind of trance. So what it basically is that it's your brainwave slowing down. Mm-hmm. So you have four kinds of brain waves, and beta brain waves is very high. You and I are in beta right now, and if you or I would get very stressed, our beta would go into maybe medium beta or even high beta. It's that when the brain is really busy. Yeah, and then we have. Uh, Alpha, that is when you are a little bit relaxed. Maybe you meditate or you watch a movie or you're in nature. Mm -hmm. And then you have theta, that it's when you're a little bit of daydreaming or maybe in hypnosis or something. And delta is when you are sleeping. So hypnosis is actually slowing the brainwaves down to somewhere around alpha or theta and allowing the brain to stay in that state for a while and that's really important because in that state your mind is more creative Mm -hmm. Uh, it's more solution oriented Uh, in that state the mind uh, it's much better at see from different you know perspectives at the problem getting insights get creative and finding new ways to move forward. So I would say that uh, the mind is a little bit on fire there to, to change and to receive new information and throw out the old information. Right. And so would some people be very good at being hypnotized and, and others maybe not so good? Have you ever experienced difficulty with hypnotizing somebody? Yes and no, um, because um, normally they say that there are people that are easier to hypnotize Mm -hmm. and people that are a little bit more controlling Mm -hmm. or suspicious or a little bit more up in their head, they can be a little bit trickier to hypnotize. So yes, but for me, uh, it took me uh, some years, but then I realized that it often come down to me as a coach or a therapist so if I'm very very assertive you know very calm very confident Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter I can always you know help them into hypnosis yeah because they trust me they kind of say okay Karen well she seems a good person you can rely on her Uh, she knows what she's doing she's you know sending out a very positive or a very grounded or safe energy. So then it doesn't matter if they are really up in their heads or if they are controlling, I, we can still work in that. So I just have to be aware that, okay, now the person is a little bit trying to control the situation and I just help them to 
kind of relax a little bit more in their head. And when they notice that, oh, this is kind of a great feeling. I feel more calm in my head. Mm -hmm. I I feel smarter. (laughs) I can look at different things. And I feel some kind of release of emotion. They they just accept and feel, oh, I think I want to do this because it's helped me. Yeah. Would you say that in hypnosis, because you had mentioned creativity, is it actually opening up somebody's creative side as well as remembering certain things from their childhood? Is it the same thing? Could people, I guess what I'm trying to get at is can people get confused with creativity and what actually might have happened to them from childhood? Does that make sense? Uh, do you mean kind of making up the memories or something like that? Making up the memories, but not yeah. deliberately. It's just their creative I mind. get you. Yeah. So the, it's very, very, very important to say that our memories are never 100% true. So, and it's very subjective. So that's why you can ask like two people grown up in the same family, siblings, and they can have totally different experience of what happened, different point of views. So if they would ask each other or tell each other, they would ask each other, well, are, are, have we grown up in the same family? That's not how I remembered it. So it's extremely yeah. subjective. So we create stories in our head about the past. Mm -hmm. So no, the memories that may be arising is not 100% true and they are very subjective. But it doesn't really matter because for me, it's more about working with the essence of the memory of not being seen maybe. Yeah, okay. So we don't have need all the facts perfectly. It's more mm-hmm. about the feeling, the emotion, the sense of it, or the, the kind of the seed in the situation that what happened. So, but I'm very aware of that. I don't lead them into something that's not true. And even if they say that this is how it is, I said, yeah, that's your, you know, feeling of it that's your experience yeah. so we don't deal with facts and you have to be aware of that because sometimes people can actually create some kind of mm. memory and they go in therapy and they talk about i have this problem because i have this memory and this and this and this happened and unfortunately the therapist or the coach work with that memory that is not correct so yeah. I had a lot of clients coming to me saying that I have this problem. I know why I have this problem. It's because of this memory, this happened. And mm-hmm. when we go in hypnosis and start to work, we often notice that the problem they have today is not connected to the events that happened. Okay. So it could be, small pieces of what happened but it's often more a broad spectrum of things that happen together from you know different ages different people different events and together it created 
this kind of belief or behavior that you don't like. You termed the subconscious programming as the matrix. And there's so many different theories as what the matrix is in today's world. (laughs) But what is the matrix to you? Mm. What is your perception of it? Well, (laughs) I can say that I do love the matrix movies. I am a hardcore fan, at least the first two. Um, So the Matrix for me is a little bit like the Matrix in the movies. Um, So it's um, some kind of constructed reality that we live in. Mm -hmm. And actually, we do have that in our brains as well. So Uh, Through our senses, we experience the world and it goes into our brains and it creates a reality that is our own. And with hypnosis or with coaching or talking to someone that is very wise, it's a little bit like taking the red pill. Uh, (laughs) You go down the rabbit hole and maybe sometimes you have to kind of take away your own created reality and see what it's really about and that often it was it's really scary for people to see really the kind of the truth or you could say another reality because we don't really know what is the truth uh, here so um yeah so for me the matrix could be inside you but it could also be outside side of you for me and it's a created reality that we together agreed on that this is the reality this is the truth but it's really interesting that what is underneath it so I do love the rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) would you say then that part of the reason why there's such there's such a large percentage of people that are struggling with some sort of mental illness or you know depression that it has something to do with the exterior or is it the interior as well or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both but because well of course you can say that if someone treats you badly it's your own interpretation of that that makes you feel bad then it takes everything back to yourself right Mm -hmm. um And I said, yeah, on on paper, (laughs) that's what it is. But I am a little bit more like we also are humans. Yeah. And it's not easy to be be totally Mm -hmm. in balance, letting everything negative around you to just, you know, uh, go go away and not react on it. I know because uh, many years ago, I was in India at an ashram for uh, a month. And I had an idea that all these, you know, gurus or monks or everything, that they were really balanced and calm because (laughs) that's what I thought. And living on an ashram, I saw behind the curtain And I saw that there were humans too. So no, they were not always balanced. And we actually had to do uh, chores at the ashram. So uh, I had to scrub the floors where we slept. And another girl, she was forced to clean up the rooms for the, the monks. 
And one day she came to me and said, do, do you know, Karen, I have to tell you, they have Coca-Cola there, they have <laughs> chips, they have TV, and they, they look at movies, they have DVDs. And I was like, ooh, really shocked. And I, well, I thought they were kind of meditating the whole day. And because they forced us to meditate a lot of hours every day, and we had to eat sattvic food, you know, just eating two meals a day with really pure, clean veggies, a little bit of rice. I was constantly hungry. Mm, uh, wow. And then she said, well, they have Coca-Cola and they have chips, <laughs> and they have chocolate and everything. And I like, what? So, you know, what I mean is that, but they're humans, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So with that, I want to say that I think that, yes, a lot of these comes from internally when you are mentally not feeling very well depressed or anxious and everything but I do think that the environment is absolutely affecting us and that's why a lot of coaches say that show me your five nearest friends and I will tell you who you are as a person and if we are in a bad situation they say remove yourself from that situation so for me that's indicating that yeah you can work on yourself and you can resolve a lot of old negative traumas or behaviors, and you can choose to strengthen your mind, but the environment will always affect you in some way. Your book, just to highlight a a few of what you talk about, you explain the five-second rule to build self-confidence. And and there's also another one where it's the 90-second way that you can change your emotional state and so there seems to be a lot of of evidence with certain amount of seconds to change your way of thinking so could you just elaborate on changing your emotional state in 90 seconds Yes, it's a, it's a bit like this that uh when you have an emotion it's almost like a wave mm-hmm. so it's kind of coming and then it's like woo, getting over you yeah <laughs> and then it's sudden then after a while it's kind of fade away like a wave mm-hmm. so 90 seconds it's about just waiting for that wave to pass and then you will notice that it passes fairly quickly and if it doesn't it's often because you kind of you know thought about what is wrong in your life again and a new wave starts yeah so If you just allow yourself to sit with the negative emotion for a little bit, it will go away. But that's not what we are doing. Uh, I can give you a really easy, easy example. So if you get really mad, you start shouting at someone directly often instead of just sitting with the anger for 90 seconds. And then you will notice that you're not that angry any longer. And hopefully you can solve the argument in a more adult way. And Mm -hmm. the other one is food. Sometimes when you feel like, oh, I need a chocolate Mm -hmm. or I need that confirmation of something. If you just wait a little bit, the wave or the feeling that I need it, it it goes away after a while. But often we are really, really scared of our emotions because when we are kids, they are so strong in Mm. our little, little tiny bodies. So when we grow grown up, we are kind of scared of emotions because we know that they can be big and they can be strong and we didn't know how to handle them because our parents didn't 
teach us. Mm -hmm. So the first, just a little bit notion of, oh, there is a feeling, we do something. <laughs> Maybe we take a smoke or we eat some chocolate or we argue with someone because we need to kind of distract it or just get it out of our way. Instead of just allowing it to be the wave, hit us and then just move away. An emotional state that I've been working on for quite some time to the point where I'd, I don't need to think about yeah. my response anymore. For example, you know, this, this happened quite a few years ago, so I have changed. I am a better yes, person. Yes, me too, but I'm still working on it. <laughs> right, me too. Like, you know, I, there's always something to work on. You're never going to be the perfect person, obviously. There was a vehicle that kept parking in my bay, my car bay at at my, the, my place of residence. And okay. I didn't know who it was. I would rock up after work or if I had gone out somewhere and there'd be the same car parked in my bay. And I was getting really angry about it because I'd have to park out on the street, which isn't safe because of the way the streets are. So you could cause an accident and most likely get a fine. So I was fuming by the time that this happened because this wasn't the the second or the third or the fourth time and so I had a feeling I knew who it was but anyway I came into the car park on my return home and I saw this man walking away from the vehicle I didn't actually see him get out I just saw him walking away from it so I knew it was him and I pressed the window down and I said, excuse me, is that your vehicle? And he looked at it and he shook his head and went, nah, it's not me, sorry. And he walked off, but I knew, I knew it was him. I just, I had that feeling. Yeah. And so I, I parked out on the street like I had to and I was livid. I was so furious. I went to my apartment. And I went to the window, which had a view of the car park. Yeah. And I sat there and I waited for this guy to get into his vehicle. Right? <laughs> I was just so worked up and I was allowing myself to get worked up too. I was conjuring all these things in my head of how I was going to do it and how I was going to bust this guy when he gets into his vehicle. Yeah. So by the time he comes out, it's nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> can imagine how angry I was yeah. and I went out there and it was on I was yelling at him yeah. who do you think you are you lied to me I asked you if this was your vehicle and you said it wasn't how dare you yeah. so this guy was a big lad you know, he was over six foot he looked like he had been working out 24 7 he was massive in comparison to me. I'm five foot three. And I just ripped into him. You know, you did this because I'm a female and I'm smaller than you. So you thought you could get away with it, but you can't because I'm here and you better move your car and I'm going to complain to the police. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy was taken back. He was just, when I, now that I look back at it, I laugh a lot. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. it was my friend because I ended up telling my friend about what happened and and she actually said to me, you got to be careful with that because this guy, he could have you know, knocked you out with one punch. Yeah. And I took a moment 
And I really looked at it and thought to myself, yeah, I really need to assess yeah. my, my responses, especially when it comes to, to fight, because I do like to confront people, not aggressively if there's an issue, regardless of whether or not it's in a situation that someone is thinking negatively, I, I still confront. I'm not concerned about it turning into a brawl or anything like that because of, I usually approach situations quite quite well and calmly but obviously not in aggression but yeah I uh my intuition has always been to to charge yeah so like even when there there was a, a robbery in my home not in the place that I'm living in now but this happened quite some time ago my initial instinct was to get them out of the house as opposed to hide or you know freeze flight mode it could have had a reverse effect and you know, he could have retaliated in a violent yeah. way but that's that's why some people uh, unleash their anger on someone that are kind of more vulnerable than themselves so for instance if you are at work and you're really angry with your boss or a customer and you have to be polite you can't do anything you come home and you spill out your anger on your partner or your kids because they love you and they can't go anywhere. <laughs> so, and, and so you also have to be aware of that. Yes, you can yourself get damaged like the situation you were talking about, but you can also damage other people because when you yell at your kid, because you are really angry at your boss or your customer and you have to be polite and you come home mm. and you yell at your children because they forgot to clean the room or something yep. you hurt them in the long run because they can't protect themselves and often that also built some kind of guilt or shame within you and then you start to feel i'm not a good person because i've yelled at them because you know a lot of people deep down we know that it's not right to yell at a no. person that is you know, beneath us in age or very vulnerable. So if we do that, we are not very proud of ourselves. So that will also stack together uh, and create um, a mental image of our, ourselves, who we are and if we like ourselves or not. Mm -hmm. So the anger should be placed on hopefully the right person. Right. <laughs> and if you take a 90 second I thought break, he was the right person, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, so, um, but maybe if you could have at that point control your emotions a little bit with 90 seconds, just allowing the worst steam to disappear or vanish, mm -hmm. maybe you could have been more constructive and somewhere protecting yourself. Yeah. But happen. It did, nothing happened, so you were safe. No, anyway. but it could be yeah, another yeah. situation where something could right. happen. Yeah, absolutely. The five-second rule to building self-confidence. Even though I might be confident yeah. in confrontation, <laughs> I tend to be that person who can also tell themselves, "You can't do it. It's not good enough." So, yep. what is it that can give us that boost of "You can do it"? Uh, it's like we have to understand that um, 
research and studies has shown that we only have a kind of a five second window when we're going to do something before the brain or the mind says no. Yeah. <laughs> so fear, fear can kick in, uh, being doubtful about something, laziness, uh, motivation goes away, whatever it is. So I, I usually take the example of you committed to yourself and say, I'm going to walk 30 minutes every day. Mm-hmm. And you come home from work and you're really tired and you look out the window and it's raining and it's cold. Then you have kind of five seconds maximum before the, the mind says, well, maybe not today. Let's yeah. sit in the sofa, drink a cup of tea, watching some Netflix and having a nice time. So, and it's because first of all, it's a protection mechanism that if you should do something that the subconscious mind is considered to be a little bit risky or dangerous, it's going to say, no, this is riskful. Something can happen. Don't do it. It's a very strong survival instinct. Mm. And that's what we call the comfort zone. And the other thing is the energy saving. Because sometimes it's hard to do things. It's hard to go out and walk in the rain. So Mm -hmm. we can become a little bit, um, you know, lazy and say, no, I don't want to do this. So it's for comfort saving energy. So we have to know that we have to be the fastest gunman in town. So we have to kind of not wait, just jumping up from wherever we are sitting and just start to move, not start to feel and think about is it a nice weather outside? Do I like to do this? And if it doesn't work, that's because that could be something deeper underneath, uh, some kind of blockage, some kind of fear that you actually need to address. Yeah. So often when I work with clients, I work on both. So I work on a deeper level with some kind of fear or something that is deeper rooted and then afterwards I tell them I'm now going to give you the five second rule so I want you to on the next meeting just you know raise up your hand and ask a question and you just have five seconds to do it when you get into the room or if you are uh, at a network dinner or something I want you to spot the person you want to talk to and you just can't count on five four three two one and you just kind of start yourself moving toward, not thinking about, oh, I don't know if that person wants to talk to me. They, they look really busy or they're out of my league or something. So for me, it's often working with a combination of the deeper fear and the more surface like starting ritual. But if you don't go to a coach and if you don't go in therapy, you can use these as a starting ritual. So whenever you know that you want to do something that is a little bit scary, Mm-hmm. A little bit uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, takes a bit of effort <laughs> with something that you're not really motivated to do. You just know that start counting from five down to one. And on one, you move the body because you need to kind of also physically break the loop. Yeah. So five, four, three, two, one, move. Don't give the mind any chance to make you feel that you can't do it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do it. It's hard because you're going to lose that fight. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've lost that fight so many times. And there are still <laughs> things that I'm working on that I'm still losing the fight. But for me, the only way I lose is that I stop trying. So even if I uh, haven't been able to do certain things for maybe hundreds of times, times, I'm still trying to get it right a little bit. And not because it needs to be perfect. That's important to know. (laughs) Uh, Because if it's because you need to be perfect, maybe you have to rethink it. But it could be that it's a really, really good thing for you. It's like that expression, you know, you can't lose if you don't give up. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. I like that. You've just got to practice what you preach. (laughs) You know, you really do that. (laughs) Yeah. For me, that is is really important. Yeah, it is. But for me, as a coach, um, I wouldn't feel good about myself telling my clients or my students to do the work and not doing it myself. Mm. Uh, because I would feel guilt or shame for not being a living example. But I'm also very humble that I am just a human being. So I have a lot of shadows. I have a lot of faults, but at least uh, some of them I'm trying to work on. And some of them, it's a little bit more about accepting who I am. Yeah. It's great. It's brilliant. I love your honesty and how genuine you are. It really shows. And I just see this white light around you. It's amazing. (laughs) It's probably the spring (laughs) coming to Sweden. (laughs) What would be your overall message? What would you like to communicate to the world if you could reach out and touch people and make them change their ways? What What would you say? Uh, I would just repeat what I said before that there is nothing wrong with you. So don't be so hard on yourself. Show empathy because you're still here standing, trying to figure out who you are, trying to figure out life. So instead of saying that there is something wrong with you because there isn't, know that it's the program that is running you. That's the, that's the problem. That's the fault. And that you can change. It's going to take some work and patience, but it's going to be so worth it because you're going to be finding your own power. And with that, you will find your freedom. And you will also feel that that will build your self-love and self-value because when you do the right thing and you're achieving your goals and you treat other people with sincerity and empathy and respect, you're going to feel proud about yourself and proud, really a a, a good way of being proud of yourself, feeling that you have a, a moral compass or a moral code that you're living by values that you can be proud of that will build your self-esteem the most. Absolutely. I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, yeah, I did it. No shortcuts, no medication. No. Uh, it's just, yeah. And, and yeah. having to work on yourself is probably the hardest thing to do. I think once you've, you, you start it, obviously, like the five second rule. Yes. Yeah. You're yeah. on your way, but yeah, it's something so simple. We, yeah. we just always forget that 
yeah, it's our own self that we've got to develop to become this full potential being. And yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. And one very important component there is to be cheering yourself on, Mm. giving you a high five or something, saying that I'm still standing, I'm still trying to be a better person, I'm trying to take responsibility, I'm trying to sort this out. Because often I meet a lot of people that are very hard on themselves. So be kind to yourself, show empathy. And of course, owning that I have a couple of problems here and there that I need to work on, but still being sharing on yourself because that means the world to you. I know that from my own experience that when I started to be nicer to myself, when I started to cheer myself on instead of blaming myself that I didn't do things better, something massive shifted. Oh, Karen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really love everything that you've said. It's, it's great. Yeah. Your book as well. So you, you wrote this in 2021. Well, it was published in 2021. 2021, it was published uh, so a half a year ago. So now you can buy it like on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and everywhere. So you can find me there. Okay. Yeah. And and how can they directly find you? Do you have a website? Is there a, a way that people yes, can I contact do. you directly? Yeah. So they can always find my website and it's my name, KarenTiden.com. And they can go there. There is a Swedish version and there's an English version and they can just click on a little English flag and there they can find my email address and they can also find how to to book an appointment or if they just want to ask me a question, they can always email me there. Yeah. Great. And I'll also get all of those links and I'll put it in the podcast episode. And so people that are listening in, they can just click on the link and they can find you. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I just want to thank you again. I really appreciate it. I'm extremely grateful to be connecting with you and for you to share your knowledge with my listeners. So thank you. Of course. Cool. Thank you. That ends the conversation. I truly do believe that our emotions are records of the past and it really is up to us to override the hardwiring program of our brain as karen suggested it is those little simple and quick actions we can take to create new pathways to change a particular perception that we are holding on to there is also exponential empirical data that proves humans can manifest mind and heart coherence to create a a a positive energy field or high frequency that radiates throughout our electromagnetic field of the body out into our external environment and you can search brain and heart coherence you'll find copious amounts of information if you type into your search engine of your computer google or whatever platform you use and you will also find well-known people that are connected to this belief system and skill set that we can actually create for ourselves as human beings. And you'll also come across such names as Nikola Tesla. Yes, that's my man, Nikola Tesla. And it all starts with knowing self, which seems to be a ubiquitous universal custom to upgrading our mind, body and spirit. So perhaps start getting in tune with or 
even reclaim control of this frequency of knowing self before an outside artificial intelligence <laughs> attempts to take over our way of thinking and behaving and uh, learn from past experiences rather than relive them. Remember the five-second rule to motivation and no one is perfect. So have an open heart, have an open mind, live your life and be free. Thanks for tuning in.